Hey, my name is Jay Warner Wallace, and I'm the author of Cold Case Christianity. I, I gotta tell you, if you're listening to this radio, you know you're in a good place, and I cannot endorse more highly the intellect and the passion of your host. So just enjoy this radio program. Is he a real one? Radio is the real thing. And Veda, thank you so much for doing the most important work of the kingdom. Hey, this is Greg Kokel, author of Tactics, a Game Plan for Discussing Your Christian Convictions and the story of reality, how the world began, how it ends, and everything important that happens in between. And you're listening to, is he a real one? Hey everybody, it's Veda, and I'm here uh, with another episode of Is He A Real One Radio. Thank you all for coming out. You know, on today, we're going to be talking about a new topic. So last time we talked about the historical reliability of the New Testament, the 27 books that are in the New Testament. But I want to follow that up with, I want to follow that up with some objections that kind of come around that. Some objections that I hear and that I got sent to me since posting that video was about what about the books that didn't make the Bible? What about the books that belong in the Bible, but they clearly aren't in the Bible? You know, what about what about that? What about the objection of, you know, there's really 81 books in the Bible. There are more books in the Old Testament, but they got removed you know, when they put out the Bible that you decide to follow. These are objections that people make. Truthfully speaking, people make that objection when they haven't. When people make that objection, I think that that demonstrates a lack of research. You know, uh, it, it, it just clearly demonstrates a lack of research. And I kind of want to make some things available for us so that we can know how to respond to such objections. All right. So, so first of all, so first of all, let, let's talk about the criteria of um, discovering s- some books that are actually inspired by God. Okay, what w- what does that mean, right? You know, for instance, you know we have early church councils, you know, who got together. We have numerous church councils that got together for various reasons, and some will say that they decided which books are in their in are in our Bible, but that's simply not the case, you know. Um, so early church councils, they weren't deciding and picking which books we will view as scripture, but what they were doing is recognizing and discovering the books that were already inspired and had the fingerprints, so to speak, as being divine. You know, one criteria of that is that it had to be written or commissioned by an apostle during the apostolic period. Okay, so if something was written after, long after we know Paul died, long after we know Thomas died, and all of these people died, it wasn't even written during that period. You know, we didn't already had early church fathers and other people doing things. So now that this new book comes out and it's claiming inspiration, the followers are able to disprove that or recognize that this isn't really an inspired book of God. Because A, it's not written by who it's claiming to be written by, and and it's not commissioned by who it's claiming to be written or commissioned by, and it's not even during the apostolic period. Another reason would have to be that it, that, I'm sorry, another reason that would have to be is that it has to be consistent with what we already know uh, that's revealed by God. So if something comes out and it contradicts and it contradicts what God has already revealed to us, then we know it isn't from God. I mean, I can write a book right now, and I can try to sound really, really smart. I can try to sound really, really 
wise and try to be as divine as I can. But in my flesh, I'm certain I'm going to say something while I'm doing uh, this this piece of literature that's going to contradict what we already know God has revealed. And that's, uh, you know, that's a dead giveaway right there. And many of the books, well, all of the books that people claim should be in the Bible, but they aren't, we can tell that they don't belong there when we A, look at history and B, actually read them. You know, when we actually read them, we see that this is not the inspired word of God. Another Another way, I named two, I mentioned it had to be written or commissioned by an apostle during the apostolic period. Two, has to be consistent with what we already known to be revealed by God. Three, if, if it was only used by a few churches and not universally, then it probably isn't inspired. Let me use an example. Uh, let's say, you see, I'm in the music industry. I got connections and I have resources and I do beats. I do dope beats. You know, so I can do a beat and I can say, hey, y'all, Dr. Dre produced this beat <clears throat> and I can use my resource. I can do the beat myself and the beat can be fire. Like the beat can be really dope and I can utilize the resources that I have to say, hey, Dr. Dre has a free instrumental. He wants to see who can who can rap on it the best or whatever. And if I did that, there's going to be some people who may believe it or may believe it for a hot second, you know because I think I have that much influence to where people will kind of, you know, participate in it. And then even if they don't necessarily believe it's from Dr. Dre, they may still go, well, the beat is dope and I ain't got nothing else to do. Let me go on and lay a hot 16 on it. And you may get some traction. You may get some people who are actually freestyling or writing a verse or writing a song to my beat. And I'm claiming that it was from Dr. Dre, but it's, it's going to pale in comparison to if Dr. Dre himself actually did that beat and put out word and said, hey, y'all, I'm putting out this beat. It's a free instrumental. I just want to see who can write the best verse to it. Have at it. If he does it, man, that's going to go everywhere. It's going to go everywhere really, really fast. And it's probably going to last for a really, really long time compared to when Veda does it and he's in the music industry and it's some people doing it. And maybe I may have tricked some people because they trust my word or whatever. But at the end of the day, to say it pales in comparison to Dr. Dre's is an understatement, right? So it's kind of like that when it comes to these letters and these books that were written that try to claim biblical authority. And sometimes they traveled a little bit, but for the most part, they would only travel you know, in like these small areas, but it wouldn't travel universally. If you want to talk about, if you want to learn about how the New Testament in particular traveled universally, just go to our last video where we talked about the historical reliability of the New Testament and how it was just a tsunami of copies, how it was just a tsunami of different uh, um, manuscripts and fragments of the New Testament text. We don't have that with the other ones. Why? Because it's not really who, it's not really from who they claim to be from. And last but not least, you know, just the dating. You know, I kind of touched on this already, the dating of these writings that claim to be authoritative, that claim to be written by apostles, that claim to be of the inspired word of God, they're just clearly not in the apostolic period. Uh, most of them are written in the second century, third century, even fourth century, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They were never viewed as scripture, except for, again, maybe a few 
maybe minor moments, you know, but they were never viewed as scripture. So now that we covered that, I kind of want to talk about a few books that you may hear mentioned, you know, uh, all right. So there are a few books that we may actually hear mentioned specifically, right? You know, Gospel of Mary, Gospel of Thomas. Let's talk about the Gospel of Thomas first. So the Gospel of Thomas was discovered in a 1945 collection of codices. All right. It was in the Coptic language and the Gospel of Thomas happened to be in that collection. Now, what I'm not sure of is all right, let me let me let me pick my words carefully. So we already had fragments of the Gospel of Thomas since about 1890. Okay, we had fragments of the Gospel of Thomas since about 1890, but I'm not sure if we knew if if it was the Gospel of Thomas before 1945. That's the part I'm not sure of, but I do know that a major part of the Gospel of Thomas was discovered in 1945 in a collection of um, Coptic language codices. Now, the earliest fragment that we have today that we still have access to for the Gospel of Thomas is dated around AD 200. That's really early. That's really early, historically speaking, that we have a fragment of the Gospel of Thomas that's dated around AD 200. That's really early, you know, but <clears throat> when we examine it, we can still see that this clearly isn't an inspired word of God and it doesn't belong in the New Testament canon. Uh, let's just look at what it is. So for, so for one, the Gospel of Thomas is basically a collection of 114 sayings, and it's mostly attributed to Jesus. And it paints a picture of Jesus that's unlike how we know him to be historically. Now, scholars and experts who have studied it, they say that it was written around AD 190 or something like that. AD 190 is when the Gospel of Thomas was written. Now, that's a pretty long time ago, but again, it clearly falls outside the apostolic period. It's long after Thomas has actually died, and experts and examiners of the Gospel of Thomas, not just Christians, by the way, not just Christians, but just scholars in general, they say that the Gospel of Thomas certainly depends on the canonical Gospels for the information that it's saying. You know, so the fact that it differs from the four canonical Gospels and it differs from it, it demonstrates that it clearly isn't authentic. Okay, so now why would an examiner or expert say that it's relying on it? Now we can do an episode, in fact, I think we will. I think we'll do a complete episode of each book that I'm mentioning here. Not the apocryphal books, because there's too many of them. Or maybe we will, I don't know, I, I, I don't know. Um, but but the, uh, the, when reading the Gospel of Thomas, I'm trying to think of an example. Okay, so let's say, let's say, uh, you know, I think of, a, you know, of 9-11 all on my own, right? Uh, I remember 9-11. I was in the seventh grade when that happened. I remember where I was. I remember watching the news. And I can write an entire um, essay or dissertation on 9-11 events, right? Now, if someone comes along, now I can write it from my perspective. Now, if someone comes along, <clears throat> say 300 years after me, after you and I are alive and, and they want to, uh, and they want to write about 9-11 and the only things that survived, this isn't an exact, this isn't an exact example, but try to follow me. Let's say the only thing that survived is four 
major writings on 9-11 and mine was one of them and there are three other ones. So someone is claiming 300 years later or a couple hundred years later to have been there or to have been alive during 9-11 and they're writing their experience and it differs from me and the other people who still have writings that survived that's talking about 9-11. A, an expert in that area will be able to read it and see that it's utilizing the information that I said. It's utilizing the information that the other major writings about 9-11 has said, opposed to writing from its own unique point of view. And truthfully speaking, yes, experts do it, but even you can do this if you were to actually read it yourself. That's the Gospel of Thomas. I don't want this video to be too long, you know, but I do want to cover some information. And I promise you all, I promise you y'all, I'm working on my technical difficulties so that when I'm saying information like this, it will be able to be a PowerPoint or some sort of information on the screen so that when I'm talking and I'm saying stuff about years and I'm saying where things were located, you can actually see it because it'll help the information pop. And of course, if you're taking notes, if you want to do that as well, if you're, if you're watching on the YouTube channel. So that's the Gospel of Thomas. You know, so it's written around AD 190, clearly outside of the apostolic period. It's not really written by Thomas. It doesn't belong in the New Testament. Let's talk about the Gospel of Peter. Now, the Gospel of Peter was found in a codex in Egypt, all right, in around 1886 or 87, something like that. Now, in 1970 to 80, somewhere around there, more fragments were actually located that are believed to be the Gospel of Peter. Now, there is a scholar who believes that the Gospel of Peter should be taken seriously. Um, his name is John Crossan. Now, he's the only scholar whom I am able to find who takes the Gospel of Peter seriously. But to be fair in, in revealing the research you know, that I've done, <clears throat> I'm mentioning his name. But again, he's virtually alone. I don't know any other scholar that that takes the Gospel of Peter seriously. In fact, many scholars disagree with a whole lot of things that John Crossan says. The Gospel of Peter is dated around the second century, around AD 150 to 190. Again, the tradition, this is long after Peter died. The traditional view about Peter's death is around AD 64 to AD 67. This isn't just Christian people, this is just scholarship. They say that Peter died around AD 64 to AD 67. The Gospel of Peter is dated to be written around AD 150, AD 190, you know. So, you know, we have early church fathers who simply don't cite him. That's one reason why we can know that it wasn't dated early. People like Justin Martyr, Melito, etc., you know, they, they would have cited it if this was actually written by Peter or if it was written and if it was circulating the church sooner than that, because just the martyr in them were around, you know, and they didn't do it. And also, if you actually read the Gospel of Peter, it demonstrates it like it just it just reeks of inauthenticity. You know, it has giant angels escorting Jesus from the tomb. <laughs> you know, it has a it has a cross that speaks. Now, granted, I know the Bible has some miraculous things. I know the Bible has some things that when I was a non-believer, I thought it was all a fable. I thought it was all a fairy tale that somebody made up, you know, but I was saying that ignorantly without actually reading the Bible. But if you actually read the Bible, you know, things actually do make complete sense. And, you know, it's just things that sounds like legend. Like right now, when we try to think of TV shows and movies and we try to think of something that's really dramatic, 
we, you know, we would say something like a talking cross, <laughs> you know, giant angels escorting Jesus from the tomb, you know, things like that. And also it, it demonstrates ignorance with how Jew, with how Jews of that time actually got down the things that they did. And again, I plan on doing a video that, that can zero in on certain things that I'm saying, but not, but not focusing in too much on, because I kind of just want to get through a little bit of this so that anybody who may be having questions or anybody who may be having doubts can feel confident that the 66 books that are in our Holy Bible are the books that belong in our Bible. Amen? Uh, yeah, so there are others. In, all right, so first of all, when we're talking about these books that are in the New Testament or that supposedly belong in the New Testament, usually I only hear Gospel of Mary, Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Peter, uh, Gospel of Judas or something like that. But there are a few others that circulated a little bit that are forgeries that don't really get talked about. And if you're a Christian and you're listening to this, I want to encourage you to be I want to encourage you to be familiar with the information that I'm saying, because when people hit you with an objection, when people share a meme because it's attempting to debunk Christianity and and they just shared it just because, hey, it's this and Jesus, so hey, it must be right. I'm with it, you know? When you demonstrate a lack of knowledge about when these things were discovered, about scholars who actually have viewed it, books that actually cover it, you know, it demonstrates that you actually researched this more than they have, more than the objector has. And if you're a person who isn't a believer, I'm hoping that some of this information can make sense. And again, I welcome everybody to just simply look up everything that I'm saying. Uh, I plan on using sources throughout what I'm saying right now, scholarship sources, you know, because I'm not a scholar yet. You know, at this point, I'm not Dr. Veda Heshman or anything. So I'm very intentional about citing things. In fact, if you look up Josh McDowell's and Sean McDowell's 2017 version of evidence that demands a verdict. A lot of the stuff that I'm saying right here, I actually got from that book. There are other places, and I'll continue to say other resources where we can get information about the things that we're covering as it pertains to the New Testament, as it pertains to the books that claim authority that should be in the New Testament. A lot of this can be found in Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell and Sean McDowell, their 2017 version, okay? Now, let's talk about the Edgerton Gospel. The Edgerton Gospel is one that doesn't really come up a whole lot. It was found in Egypt around 1934. Again, uh, Crossan, he dates this early as well. He dates all of these things. Let me not say all of these things. I've been trying to pick my words really carefully, but he dates most of these things really, really early. Uh, scholars don't agree with him. In fact, you know, I don't even hear, I don't even hear this book brought up like that, you know, but Edgerton, it was found in Egypt around 1934. It's pretty much unanimous, not pretty much, it's unanimously outside of Crossing. I don't know anybody who accepts this book as, uh, as inspired. Now let's go to the Gospel of Mary. Now, the Gospel of Mary, to my knowledge, it's not a complete copy of the Gospel of Mary anywhere, like a complete copy of it. However, a Coptic fragment was discovered in about the 19th century, which isn't that long ago. Now, Karen King, Karen King of Harvard Divinity School, she's a historian. Uh, she, has, she has work on this, and so does Daryl Bach. Um, King, she says that the Gospel of Mary rejects Jesus's suffering and death as the path to eternal life. Again, Karen King, um, she's at Harvard Divinity School. She's a historian. And the Gospel of Mary actually claims that Mary was a prostitute. 
Now, this wasn't written by Mary. It was ascribed to her and it tried to claim apostolic authority, you know, and I'm not sure if anybody watching or listening has ever heard the um, the movie called The Da Vinci Code, but The Da Vinci Code references this and it speculates that Jesus and Mary were lovers, <laughs> you know, because it, somewhere in the Gospel of Mary, uh, it reads, much loved by the Savior as no other woman, you know, and even Dr. Bart Ehrman, who's an agnostic non-believer who writes plenty of books attempting to debunk the Christian faith, he says that that's ridiculous. And it's clearly ridiculous. I'm simply just trying to give y'all the information. Again, the Gospel of Mary, scholars who have examined this, they say that it's clearly dependent on the New Testament Gospels as far as where it got its information from. Yet and still, it's nothing like it. So, you know, so that demonstrates that it's not actually written by Mary, it's not written by an apostle, and it's also not quoted or cited by any of our early church fathers. I'm going to get through the last two really quick. There's also the secret gospel of Mark. The secret gospel of Mark. Again, crossing, he believes that it should be taken seriously, and again, he's virtually alone in this thinking. Stephen Crossan has a book called The Gospel Hoax, where he declares that why he's convinced that this is certainly a forgery. I don't know anybody outside of Crossan who even treats the secret gospel of Mark like it's anything serious. And again, if you're listening to this, this is probably your first time ever hearing about it. If this is your first time ever hearing about it and you're a Christian, don't be dismayed. You know, you're simply being made aware of information. And if, an, and if a non-believer or a hostile person comes at you with an objection or with a simple question, you know, you just have, you know, you just have an answer. You know, the scholars unanimously agree that it, it's a hoax. You know, <laughs> the secret gospel of Mark is a hoax. If you want more information on that, look up uh, Stephen Crossan's book. He has a book called The Gospel Hoax. Okay. And all of these books have late dating. They clearly aren't written by who they claim to be written by. And they clearly weren't spread copied like the other New Testament documents. Uh, and let's also talk, talk last but not least um, about the gospel of Judas. The gospel of Judas. This is my favorite one, you know, not because I, you know, I'm certain, I, I know it's not inspired, but this is my favorite one, you know, because again, this is written long after Judas actually died. Scholars say it was written about 125 years after, after his death, clearly not written by him, but <laughs> you know, it, the gospel of Judas, if you read it, you know, it has this aura, like it's giving you some hidden knowledge, right? You know, like it, it paints, it, the gospel of Judas, it elevates Judas to the level of Jesus's, of Jesus's greatest disciple. You know, if you read it, you know, it elevates Judas to the level of Jesus's greatest disciple, opposed to simply being a traitor or a villain. And it also makes Judas the hero of Jesus's crucifixion. Uh, it says that he assists in Jesus finishing his mission of salvation. You know, now, an early church father actually did mention the gospel of Judas, Irenaeus, um, in his book Against Heresies. He actually mentioned it. Uh, he mentions it as a heretical text, though. And he wrote Against Heresies around AD 180. You know, that's pretty early. But again, scholars say that this is written about 125 years after Judas's death, clearly not written by him, clearly after the 
apostolic period and you know it's it's a forgery it's a forgery you know i want to read a quote from dr bart ehrman again this is a man who is not a believer he is not a christian i mentioned him in the video when we were talking about the historical reliability of the new testament i want to read a quote from him as he as in his book uh give me one second y'all one second i want to read a quote from him i should have pulled this up before i did it but he has a book about the da vinci code he has a book called the da vinci code i want to read a quote from it <clears throat> so in his book in his book truth and fiction in the da vinci code on page 102 to pages 103 dr bart ehrman who is not a christian who he is he is an agnostic non-believer who writes several books attempting to debunk the christian faith although he although he does that he does consider himself a historian. So as a historian, he has certain views after reviewing the research. And this is what he says about the books that we've briefly discussed, like the Gospel of Judas, Gospel of Mary, Gospel of Thomas, etc. Again, this is in his book called Truth and Friction in the Da Vinci Code on page 102 to 103, he says, Dr. Bart Ehrman, agnostic non-believer says, the oldest and best sources we have for knowing about the life of Jesus are the four gospels of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is not simply the view of Christian historians who have a high opinion of the New Testament and its historical worth. It is the view of all serious historians of antiquity of every kind from committed evangelical Christians to hardcore atheists. Dr. Bart, excuse me, Dr. Bart Ehrman said that. If you don't believe me, get his book, okay? Get his book, Truth and Fiction in the Da Vinci Code, all right? where he says this, where he says this, the oldest and best sources that we have for knowing about the life of Jesus are the four gospels of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, not the other gospels that Veda had mentioned in this video that people say that it should be included in the Bible. It should not be included in the Bible, you know, and we can know that for numerous reasons, and we already just, we already discussed a few of them. And I'm gonna repeat this. This is not simply the view of Christian historians, who have a high opinion of the New Testament and its historical worth. It is the view of all serious historians of antiquity of every kind, from committed evangelical Christians to hardcore atheists. So what he is saying is, if you are a scholar or if you are a person who is serious about history, you do not look to these other books that claim authority to know anything about Jesus. This is not any hidden knowledge that's out there. These are forgeries. That's what Dr. Bart Ehrman, a devout agnostic non-believer says. And he says that when he puts on his historian hat, okay? Now I wanna wrap this video up really quick. I don't know how, how long we've been already, but I wanna touch a little bit on the apocryphal books. Now the apocryphal books are, if you aren't aware, these are books that some argue should be in our Old Testament. 
they say that they were removed, you know, for, for different reasons and things like that. You can find old Bibles, you know, I think the, like the Geneva Bible, which is an English translation that came out before King James. The Bishop's Bible may have it, but the Geneva Bible does, I'm pretty sure. You know, it has these extra books and they'll say, well, it should be 81 books in the Bible, not 66 or something like that. And because there are various books that were written and they say that these are inspired by God, but man, human, they picked out the books that they want. This is false. This is just simply false. And we know this historically. And we're going to talk about a few reasons why the books in the Apocrypha, how we can confidently trust that they are not inspired. For one, for one, the apocryphal books, it has contradictions and it contradicts the word of God. I talked about that in the very beginning of this video, right? It contradicts the word of God. You know, the Bible talks about, uh, let me pull up. I'm not going to pull out my Bible. I'm just going to pull up Luke chapter 16 on my phone real quick. Let me pull up. I'm going to pull up Luke chapter 16. Uh, verses 25 and 26. For those who are really into the Bible, what I'm looking for right now is the verse when when Jesus is telling, some say it's a parable, it's some, it's some theological debate on if this is a parable or not, but Jesus is describing a rich man who goes to heaven. No, I'm sorry. Oh my goodness, that was so wrong. <laughs> a rich man who goes to hell and a poor man who went to heaven. Okay, now Luke chapter 16, verses 25 and 26. I'm going to read this to y'all. And then I'm going to read something from 2 Maccabees, which is in the Apocrypha, that clearly contradicts the word of God. So Luke chapter 16, verses 25 and 26 says, But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. In your lifetime, you received your good things, and Lazarus, like manner, bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. None may cross from there to us. This is demonstrating that when you are, when we pass away from our earthly bodies and we're either in God's presence or we're not in God's presence, that's where we are. You know, you can't, you can't pray it away. You know, you, you can't pray. Like if I, if I die right now and I go to hell, you know, you can't pray after I die that, okay, I hope Beta makes it to heaven um, two weeks after I didn't die. Right. This is what the Bible is saying. Now, I'm also going to go to the book of Hebrews, chapter nine, verse twenty seven, Hebrew nine, verse twenty seven. I'm going to read two scriptures that supports what I'm saying. And the Bible declares, and just as it is appointed for man to die once. And after that comes judgment. After man dies comes judgment. This is what the inspired word of God says. Now let's take a look at the book of 2 Maccabees, which is an apocryphal book that is not the inspired word of God. Look how it clearly contradicts 
what we just read in the inspired word of God. The second Maccabees chapter 12, verse 45 says, wherefore he made the appropriation for them that had died, that they might be released from their sin. Now, wherefore he made the, pro the propitiation for them that had died, that they might be released from their sin. Those who had died might be released from their sin. That is a clear contradiction of God's word. Now, let's talk about how these books are clearly not recognized historically, and then I'm gonna let you go on about your day. All right, so the first reason is it has clear contradictions, and we, and we will do a complete episode on the Apocrypha about how it's not inspired as well. We will do that. In fact, I'm going to try to get a scholar who specializes in this particular subject so I can interview him or her about this, about this subject. But as of right now, y'all got me. Hey. All right. So the second one is that Jews never accepted this as scripture. Jews never accepted the apocryphal books as being in the Hebrew text or the Old Testament or, or, the, or the Old Testament canon. Let's take a look at something that Josephus says. Josephus is a classical historian. His work is referenced and revered by many, many people, Christians, Jews, historians in general, alike. And listen to what he says about the Jewish canon. And all right, this is what he says about the Jewish canon. And this is way, way, way before like the Council of Nicaea or anything like that. Listen to what Josephus says. He says, we, the Jews, we have not 10,000 books among us disagreeing with and contradicting one another, but only 22 books which contain the records of all time and are justly believed to be divine. He said there are 22 books. Now, granted, the Old Testament has 39 books. Historically speaking, when particularly when it comes to Jews, you will hear you will you will hear or read them refer to the Old Testament or the Hebrew text as being 22 books, but it's the same 39 books. They just group them together differently. We group them a certain way, so it ends up being 39 books, but they group them a certain way, and it's 22 books. Sometimes it's 24, but anytime you look at something historically and you see a Jewish historian referring to Old Testament text and, and they say 22 books or 24 books, you can bet two dollars that you don't even got that they're referring to the 39 books of the old testament that we understand it today and we see that josephus says we the jews have not ten thousand books among us disagreeing with and contradicting one another but only 22 books the 39 books that we're referring to which contain the records of all time and are justly believed to be divine he goes on to specify and he says that five of them are the books of law written by moses 13 of them cover the time from Moses from King <clears throat> cover the time from Moses to King. Oh my goodness, y'all. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm mixing up because I wrote down how to pronounce this King's name and I don't want to mess it up. And this is when, um, this, this is when I, I feel really, really bad when I don't know how to pronounce the, <laughs> you know, these old names. Wait a minute. I wrote it down. I'd rather hear y'all, I'd rather have y'all hear me stumble over my words than mispronounce his name. Hold on, y'all. I wrote this down in my notes. 
la ti da Artuxerces. Okay? Artuxerces. Now, five of them are books of law written by Moses. Thirteen of them are covered by, from the time to Moses to the king Artuxerces. The reason why that's important is because King Artuxerces, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, he reigned around the time the book of Malachi was written, which is, la which is the last book in the Old Testament. So that's why that's important, okay? And Josephus also goes on to say that four of the books contain hymns and precepts for the <clears throat> conduct of human life. Now, let's talk about how these books are actually grouped together. So we already talked about how Josephus, a historian, how Josephus, a historian, talked about the 22 books. Now, there are, there are books like Malachi, Zechariah, Micah, Jonah, Amos, Hosea, and others. I think it's about 12 or 13 of them. They're grouped together, okay? So that's one book in the Jewish Old Testament. And this is going to be 12 or 13 books in our Old Testament. In the Jewish Old Testament, you're going to see Jeremiah and Lamentations grouped together. So that's two books. And... And that's two books in our Old Testament, as we understand it today. In the Jewish Old Testament, they're grouped together. Judges, Judges and Ruth are grouped together. First and Second Samuel are grouped together. First and Second Kings are grouped together. First and Second Chronicles are grouped together. And Ezra and Nehemiah are grouped together. So when you do the math about how this is grouped together, these 22 books are the same as the 39 books that we currently revere and treat as the Old Testament. Does that make sense? So, all right. So we see Josephus, a Jewish historian, is saying this, although he doesn't clearly name, <clears throat> although he doesn't clearly, you know, name the books, he, he does name, you know, the, he does name the types, you know, like the genres, but it's, it's, consistent with history and how we understand the Jewish Old Testament or the Hebrew text to be grouped together and how that's the same 39 books. Now, not only Josephus and other historians, and we can go deeper into this in another episode, but let's talk about Jesus. I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back to the book of Luke to talk about something that Jesus said. I'm going to go to the book of Luke chapter 24, chapter 24, verse 44. All right. Verse 44. Now keep in mind, that we didn't already discussed about how they're grouped together differently. So let's go to Luke 24, 44. The Bible says, then he said to them, talking about Jesus, then Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus said this, Luke 24, 44. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me and the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now, again, I know that this video on YouTube doesn't have everything grouped together. I don't make promises, y'all, but I promise y'all, I'm currently fixing my technical difficulties and I will demonstrate showing the 39 books of the Old Testament and how they're grouped together, obviously how they're separated in our Old Testament and how they're grouped together in the, New, in the New Testament. But when Jesus says this, he's referring to the 22 books 
that we understand the Jewish Old Testament to be. This does not include the apocryphal books. This does not include the books that some claim were removed from the Old Testament later. Yes, they existed. Yes, people knew about them. And yes, they're still available to us today, but they were never ever viewed as scripture. And if we simply do our research, do our scholarly research, do our historical research, you ain't got to, I'm not saying say something just because a scholar says it or just because Veda says it, but just do your research. Like, this is a fact. Like, these, these are facts, y'all. It was never revered as scripture. And I'm saying this as a person who had a whole lot of questions when I was, a, when I was an agnostic non-believer. These are a lot of questions that I had. So I'm simply sharing information that I came across as I had a lot of questions. It's like, okay, well, what about these books over there? How come that's not in scripture? These are very realistic and reasonable explanations, right? So even when Jesus says that in the gospel of Luke, in his own words, he's referring to books, to the 22 books of the Jewish Old Testament, not those other books in the Apocrypha. Now, excuse me, y'all. <coughs> drink some water. Ah, we're almost done here. We're almost done here. I'm just going to wrap up and saying a couple things. Uh, you can look up on YouTube, World Video Bible School. They have a chart. You can look this up on YouTube, World Video Bible School on YouTube. They actually have a chart, and they mentioned that the New Testament has 263 quotes. Now, I didn't check this, but I think they're a pretty reliable source, so that's why I'm mentioning them. They, they say that the New Testament has over has about 263 quotes and it's a loop of the old testament and 370 allusions to the old testament meaning it alludes to it right 370 times and it quotes directly from it 263 times in the new testament it does that that many times about the old testament and not once does it uh you know does it mention the apocryphal any of the apocryphal books being inspired now in my interview with Dr. Michael Heiser, I asked him about the book of Enoch and that book appearing to be being quoted as prophecy from the book of Jude, which is in the New Testament. And I asked him about that. You can go to my interview with Dr. Michael Heiser. I think I asked him that at about the 41 minute mark and we discussed that. That has some good information as well, in addition to what we're talking about here. And last but not least, what I'll say as we close out this video is that the apocryphal books they don't even, for one, they don't, they, they don't even like claim to be inspired. If you read the Bible, excuse me, if you read the Bible, you're going to see books often claiming inspiration, claiming biblical authority, claiming to be the inspired word of God. Many times the, uh, you see that many times in the Old Testament and the New Testament, but we don't see that in the apocryphal books. Further confirmation that you know, it just simply isn't inspired. Now, these are helpful, they're useful, and if you're serious about your biblical knowledge, sure, you should read them, because the New Testament writers read them, because early church fathers read them, so we should read them too, but that doesn't mean it's the inspired word of God, and again, some books in the Apocrypha, they claim not to be inspired. They claim not to be inspired, Old Testament and New Testament claim biblical authority. They claim inerrancy. If you look at the Ecclesiasticus prologue in the Apocrypha, look what I'm about to read, y'all. Peep this, peep this. 
in the Ecclesiasticus prologue, it says, ye are intended therefore to read with favor and attention and to pardon us if any parts of what we have labored to interpret, we may seem to fail in some, in some, of, our, in some of the phrases. Let me read that again. Ye are intended, therefore, to read with favor and attention and to pardon us if any parts of what we have labored to interpret, we may seem to fail in some of the phrases. It's saying that if we mess up, hey, stall us out. Stall us out if we messed up, y'all. The Holy Spirit led the writers of Scripture. God inspired scripture. God doesn't make mistakes. Now, humans who copied our scripture may make some mistakes here and there. And thank God we have so many copies and we can trust what the Bible actually says. Again, refer to the other video, Historical Reliability of the New Testament. In the prologue of Ecclesiasticus, it says, hey, stall us out if we messed up, y'all, if we say anything. But you should listen to this and pay attention and learn from it. But stall us out if, if we mess up. Do that sound like God? No, it doesn't. Because it ain't God. That doesn't mean we can't learn from it, though. We can learn from it. So this is our episode on today about our books missing from the Bible. The answer is no. We can trust that the books that we have are the books that God inspired, 66 books, and that's it. No extra books in the New Testament, no extra books in the Old Testament, 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament, inspired word of God, and I thank God for his inspiration. I thank God for his word. I thank God for his inerrancy. I thank God that he doesn't make mistakes because Veda makes mistakes. Veda made a mistake earlier trying to pronounce the king's name or whatever, but God doesn't make any mistakes. God is very consistent, and it's okay for us to have questions. It's cool for us to have questions. Sometimes we can have a really, really, really awesome question, but it's still a really bad objection. If you say I'm objecting that Christianity is true or I don't think Christianity is true for X, Y, Z, this is my objection. And you say some of the stuff that we're talking about, it demonstrates that you just stopped researching. It demonstrates that you didn't keep looking for answers because if you did, you'll find it. And that's what we're here to try to help share with y'all. Answers like this, is he a real one? Yes, he is. He is so real. He died on the cross for me for you. He rose on a third day from the dead. He ascended to heaven. Oh my God, I love me some Jesus. And he forgave a wretch like me, y'all. I know what I used to say about Christians. I know how I used to laugh at Christians. Now look at me. Now look at me breaking my neck to share this information because I know it's somebody who's, who's a non-believer right now the way I used to be. I feel so stupid about what I used to say about Christianity. I feel so stupid about what I used to say about Jesus, about what I used to say about God. So foolish, because I had no idea what I was talking about. And people who make these objections, they just, you know, you know, they just didn't keep researching. And if you're a Christian and you're listening to this, um, I pray that you, you know, have some confidence in what has been demonstrated. Again, I vow to re-upload these videos with PowerPoint so that you can see the information. But just because I don't have the resources to do that doesn't mean I, 
doesn't mean I want to wait to post this information. So I still want to post this. So thank y'all so much. I love y'all. Thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. This is the latest episode of Is He a Real One Radio. And do we have the right books in the Bible? Yes, we do. A, A, Amen.